Welcome to Continuum, the International Business Council podcast, where each episode we sit down with an incredible member of the IBC community, dive in, and learn from their journey. This is John Fitzgerald. Welcome to another edition of Continuum, the IBC podcast. Today, our guest is Marty Whalen, graduate of Notre Dame and has a very, very unique background uh, to talk about where he got to today. So, Marty, welcome. I really, truly appreciate you being with us and look forward to our conversation. Thanks, John. Uh, We'll see if it's unique after we're done here. (laughs) Oh, I think we're going to be great. I think you're going to enjoy this. Um, so first, tell us a little bit about you know who you are, like where you grew up. Uh, we'll get into like the career path after that, but just kind of the background, and then that'll lead into the whole Notre Dame, how you ended up in Notre Dame, how that choice came into play. Yeah, okay. Um, well, I, strangely enough, uh, I grew up down the street from you in Joliet, Illinois. Yes. And, uh, and a voice from the past, when you contacted me, I said, this can't be John Fitzgerald from Westport. But I'll, call, I'll take the call anyway. So I, I had a, uh, you know, just a regular growing, grown up, growing up experience in a blue collar town, Joliet, Illinois, and went to Catholic grade school, went to Catholic high school and, uh, you know, worked hard and, and was the oldest of five, uh, five brothers and sisters. So just kind of worked in the family business a little bit and played the requisite sports that you play and, uh, tried to get good grades and, and, uh, altar boy and, you know, not get into too much trouble with my parents. So where, how did, you know, you went to Joliet Catholic back when we called it, you know, Catholic high. Right. Um, went to Joliet Catholic. How did Notre Dame come into the equation? You know, it's, uh, my dad went to Notre Dame. So uh, I'll be quick to point out that I probably couldn't get into Notre Dame today. I got in when it was easier and I'm sure because my dad went there, but it's funny because I I went on a college road trip with four or five guys out to Creighton, and I really fell in love with Creighton. And uh, I got a presidential scholarship. I was pretty much signed, sealed, and delivered. And in March or April, just had kind of a pang in my gut that said, I should probably rethink this. I was being, am I going just to be with my friends? What should I do? And frankly, I don't think I could have made a bad decision. But at the end of my senior year, I made a late decision to to uh, accept Notre Dame. And I ended up actually being so late that I ended up with a junior roommate as a freshman because they I hadn't gotten paired with any freshmen. But that was kind of like mainstreaming right into the social situation with all the juniors in in my dorm. So it it actually ended up pretty good and uh, had a great experience at Notre Dame. I would have had a great experience at Creighton, too, both fine schools. And I'm kind of a believer that you bloom where you're planted. And uh, I would have bloomed at Creighton as I did at Notre Dame. And you kind of make of it what you will, I think. So, so after undergrad, what was your first job? Well, so our family has a uh, had a business in Illinois, um, an office technology business. So it was office furniture, office supplies, but really it was a big machine dealership. Um, and I was the oldest son, and uh, my dad never pushed us to go into it. My grandfather actually started the business ninety years ago. Um, but my dad never, we had always worked there in the summer unless we could find a, a, a better job, better paying job, <laughs> which, which we did. Uh, but that's fine. My dad never really pushed us to come back into the business. 
Um, and I came back and I, I actually had to interview and uh, my dad kind of put me through the regular rigmarole and uh, I, I became a salesman. And 1982 was not a great time to find a job. I looked for a couple of other jobs, but I really liked working with and for my dad. And it was kind of an easy thing, although I suppose we'll get into it. I didn't find the job that easy uh, at first. And had I not been a Whalen with the last name in the business, I probably wouldn't have stuck it out. But I'm glad I did. Um, and, and looking back on that, I, I think there's a lesson there for my kids or for students in general that your first job is is a big slap in the face a little bit from coming from college and where you think you're working hard, but then real world work is a little bit different. And I did stick it out and uh, ended up working with my two brothers and uh, my dad got sick early and the three of us ended up running the business uh, for a while. And, and how long did you stay with the family business? Well, so we, we built the business and uh, we sold the business. We sold the two parts of it, furniture and supplies to a company on the same day, we really sold our dealership to uh, Xerox in 2012. And then I had an agreement to stay on for a few more years to uh, run the company. And so I did that, but it just wasn't the same. I couldn't wait to get out. Uh, it, running, a, running a portion of a publicly traded company is far different and just with a different mentality than running your own family-run business. I mean, and the other little aspect that you didn't mention that I just want to bring up just from the understanding of, of what I know about you is that when you got out of Notre Dame, you didn't go back to Joliet, though. You, the, the company was bigger than just Joliet. Yeah, right? so I, I ended up down in our Kankakee location. So now Joliet isn't really big, but I went down to Kankakee. So I thought I was going to the end of the earth, you know, or at least you could see it from there. Um and I, I didn't know anybody, and it was uh, you know no different than than students leaving and going to a city they don't know anybody, a big city, small city. It didn't really matter. I actually uh, actually loved it, loved living in the town, lived there for you know the better part of twenty five or thirty years, made a living there, uh, married a, a young lady from there, raised a family there. I can't say enough good things about Kankakee. Kankakee is like Joliet, just smaller. So in those first few years out of school, you, you've got your first job, you, you're learning, growing. What's the biggest thing, maybe two things, three things that you learned in those first few years out of college? Well, I remember uh, well, the first thing that comes to my mind, John, is that, you know, we're kind of not in Kansas anymore, to use that analogy. And uh, I remember... I, I was on straight commission and I remember telling my dad that I wasn't making any money and I had friends who were working for IBM and Procter and Gamble and I was making, I think 1982, I think I made $18,000 and they were making $26,000 and whatever it was back then. And I wasn't too happy. And my dad sat me down and uh, I, cause I told him, I said, you know what I think I'll do? I think I'll start a home cleaning business or something. And he pretty much kicked me in the butt and said, no, you should become a better salesperson. You don't take it. You don't take your job seriously. You never work at it, at the craft that it is. Um, get good at it and you'll never look back. And so one one thing that I learned very quickly was it, it's not a game. And, and uh, you know, I've got a son who is just starting out in Chicago in sales. And I've told him in the nicest way possible, as a father can do, um, that, you know, in life, right, sorry, in school, you can kind of get by with a C, 
But in real life, there's consequences when you've got to see uh, in performance or results. And, you know, in a big company, that that's a pink slip. Um, but for somebody on straight commission, it's not as much money as you, you think you should be making. So um, and and really, I look back at that kind of fondly um, because it it was a good, quick lesson in that you don't get paid for where you went to school. You get paid for what you do in the real world. And, uh, you know, you might get in the door with a Notre Dame or a MIT degree or something like that. But once you're in, you've got to perform. And I saw it from running the company that I frankly don't care where anybody was from. Um, I just wanted performance. And, and there wasn't any correlation necessarily between how hard somebody worked, the results they had, and where they went to school. Excellent. Thanks for telling us that, sharing that with us. So when you were living down in Kankakee, you made the choice to go back to school and get your MBA. Yeah. So what prompted you to do that? Tell, tell us about that experience. Yeah. So um, I was 30 years old and uh, my dad got sick and he got sick one weekend and all the kids had to go up to Chicago. They moved him via an ambulance and uh, my uncle who was in Joliet as a doctor and called me up and said, get your brothers and sisters up there. We don't think your dad's going to make it through the night. Um, so it was a scare. He did make it through the night, but he never worked again. And so at 30, uh, I was named the president. My dad actually wrote it on the back of an envelope and I was very ill prepared. I was the oldest son of three working in the business. At that point, we probably had 70 employees or so. And I was thrown into the lion's den, um, not prepared. So I quickly realized, um, you know, my dad made a full recovery and, and lasted 10 more years, but I had him as a consultant and a mentor, but he really never worked again. So I made a lot of dumb mistakes at the beginning, um, had really good mentorship from a, a man named Lou Cignoli, who is from Joliet um, as well. And and kind of squeaked by, but it became very apparent quickly that I had a degree in sociology. And that was back in the days when if you were in arts and letters, you really couldn't take business classes. They, there was like a wall between the two colleges. Now that's different now and you can pick up classes, but I never had an accounting class or anything. And I quickly realized that I need some of this business knowledge. So I went back and got an MBA. Um, and I, I really looked at it as a uh, kind of a, a great yin and yang to a business career. Um, I had a degree in sociology and, uh, you know, did a lot of English and psychology classes as well. Um, so communication and, you know, the art of people, if you will, I was really into that side of the business much more than the financial metrics and things like that. But when you're running a business, it's foolish not to know those things. You can lean on your controller. You can lean on your accountant. But at some point, you really need to kind of have the knowledge of what the financial metrics are so that you can set strategy and run a business. So the language of business, I learned a little bit late. But but in a strange way, um, I, I think if I was in college, it wouldn't have meant as much to me. Uh, I got my MBA when I was 30 and 31 at night and I was working hard and I was looking at real numbers during the day and applying everything that I learned um, to something that I had done for 10 years or so. 
And I, I, I just think it meant more to me and it was much more relevant at the time. And I, I'll tell you, honestly, I was a far different student too. Uh, I didn't have the distractions that college students sometimes have with sports and girls and beer. Um, and I needed the knowledge. And so I really enjoyed it. I uh, loved I loved every minute of that, the challenge. And I put it, I think, to pretty good use. So, you know, I can read a balance sheet and an income statement and, and do what's necessary to understand some so the, the language of finance, too. Not great, but uh, enough to get by. Today, what motivates you? What I mean, what do you still, you know, when you get up, what do you like to do? What, from that standpoint, keeps you going? Yeah. Yeah, well, um, I'm I'm in a different part of my life now. I'm not grinding through a career. I'm done with that. And yet I've really, really taken on this kind of lifelong learner role. Um, and I just feel unshackled now to read books, to take classes, to experience things that I probably never would have had I been working 10 or 12 hours a day trying to build a business and, uh, and, and manage a business. And so I'm really enjoying the freedom of all those things that that brings. And, uh, you know, for instance, right now, I, I, we live out in Bozeman, Montana, sometimes and Indiana sometimes, but there's a program called Osher Lifelong Living, OLLI. And I'm taking a couple of classes at Montana State University right now. Uh, so, so the thirst for knowledge for knowledge's sake is something that I'm pretty much into right now. And I, I feel like a big sponge where, where I don't know much, um, but I'm open to learning things. And the what a time to be alive. You, you know, we're talking here uh, via this platform. Right. You can be anywhere. And so I can take these classes. It's just a wonderful time to have content delivery in a variety of different ways and be active in the community. And so, so that's one of the things that I'm really finding and uh, enlivening in my second career, if you will. Um, the other thing is I'm, I'm involved. I started another business with a, with a Notre Dame professor and we have a business in South Bend um, that's a social entrepreneurial business. And so we have a company that makes solar panels and it's a great time to be in the uh, business of making solar panels. Every one we make, we sell. Um, and it's a 21st century business. But the social part of it is uh, Pat Regan and I both taught in a program through Notre Dame and Holy Cross where where they have what they call Moreau College Initiative, where men at Westville Prison in Laporte, Indiana can take classes and get a associate's and then a, a bachelor's degree. So Pat and I both taught in that class and uh, or taught in that program. And he came to me with the idea. He said, you know, when these guys get out, they clean offices for eight fifty an hour. He said, we really need to start a business. So um, I was in a position to help. Pat does the heavy lifting as far as the day-to-day operations, but we're partners and uh, it's called Crossroads Solar. And the, the social part of it is, I probably should have said this first, is we only employ formerly incarcerated people. Really? And yes. So our entire workforce is people who have been in the judicial system. So we've got, we've got murderers, we've got drug dealers, um, 
And these are people who want to make a, a better life for themselves. And society, unfortunately, kind of continues to punish people even after they've served their time. So they've done their, you know, they've done the crime, they've done the time. But boy, a lot of our laws are draconian and they just don't get a fair shake in society. So Pat and I started this company and uh, we, we pay a, a living wage. We started about $18 an hour. Our plant manager has an engineering degree from Purdue, an MBA from IUSB, the, uh, the Holy Cross degree through Westville, um, Moreau College Initiative. And he happened to do 17 years for dealing drugs. He just happens to be a very good plant manager. How long have you had? When did you start this? Sorry to interrupt you. When did you start this? No, no, no. We started this. Uh, it was in the planning stages during uh, 2016, 17. And we we went, Pat actually went over to China. We bought the machines. Uh, we couldn't have started the business at a worse time. We started right at sure. the beginning of COVID. Yeah. And our machines were coming from Wuhan, China. So it, it's been, they were, they were supposed to send four engineers over. Um, these machines aren't made in the United States. We couldn't get them locally. Um, but instead, what we ended up doing is we ended up getting four or five engineering students that summer with their masks on. They met the equipment. They WeChatted with the engineers over in China and we got the plant up and running. So we make we make a hundred panels a day and sell them in the local market and a national distributor. And uh, we're proud, uh, you know, they're domestically produced solar panels. And what a great initiative! A great yeah, so we like to we like to say, you know, people always ask, "Is it a not for profit?" And we are not a not for profit, but we say we're for more than profit. Of course, no, that's great. But we like we like profit. That's fantastic. So yeah, so I. I'm passionate about that and uh, making a go of that. And so so I'm still dabbling in, in a few different things. I, I enjoy being active. Notre Dame undergrad, you got your, your MBA. And then a few years ago, uh, I want you to talk a little bit about a decision you made that attracted you back to Notre Dame. And if you could just talk about that and give a little detail. Yeah. So... Um, I had, we had sold the business. I had put my time in and I, I wanted to get out and I did. And I had about maybe a half a year of, uh, of retirement and, uh, didn't particularly like it that all that much and was in my wife's hair a lot. And John, we had, we had four kids in college that year and they were in four different time zones. So we had a freshman, sophomore, junior, and senior in four different time zones. So we actually bought a sprinter van, a, a, a camper, and Kathleen and I were going to take off and see the country. And uh, we bought the van and Kathleen was reading the New York Times and she read this uh, about adult education and Harvard and Stanford had a program about this. And there was just a line at the end of it. She said, you really ought to do this. And there was a line at the end in the New York Times in this article that said, Notre Dame is starting one of these programs. So I thought, you know, I'll probably never get in. But anyway, I picked up the phone. I, I called uh, Tom Schreier, the, the, the founder of this program, a, a Notre Dame grad, younger than I am. But he had had a successful career in business. I talked to him. Sounded wonderful. I was fortunate enough to be, uh, to be selected to be in the in inaugural cohort. There were 15 of us. And so I went back to school for a year. 
uh, took classes just as if I was a student, had to get permission from the, uh, from the, the professors, but, um, had, had that, we got to go to the, uh, we got to go to the gateways in both Rome and Israel, take advantage of Notre Dame's, uh, global. Fantastic. Uh, it was just a fantastic year. Um, you know, made new friends and, and it was really kind of an interesting transition because one of the, one of the reasons these programs exist is for, as they say, and I don't even like to say it, you know, somebody who's been successful in a career, they got to transition a little bit into retirement. And how do you have a successful retirement? So they talked a little bit. One of our classes was uh, about life design and what are you going to do? And we read books and learned things about some of the techniques that you might use to think deeply about what your next chapter is or what, what you're going to do. And and I remember, you know, you had to come up with kind of your big question. And my, and my big question was, how do I get joy and make sure I have joy in my life? And uh, it took me a year and a lot of book reading and a lot of discernment, which I wasn't the best discerner. I, I'm, I will freely admit that. But it, I kind of came to the conclusion at the end of the year that I was framing the question wrong or framing perhaps the word joy wrong. And I think that I think that there's a misnomer that joy is fun and you want your life to be perfect. And how can I travel more and do all of these things that are fun and great and this? And, you know, they talk about what's a good life. Um, and I came to the realization that there's joy in the everyday. Um, and it's just really recognizing that and seeing it for what it is. And uh, so it was a little bit of a reframe for me. And, and I, I don't want to, I don't want to say that I was kind of looking for the, you know, the brass ring and, and the secret to the universe, but it was, it was really what I was doing, just reframing how I would approach it. And uh, I was not unhappy, but I'm a far different person because of that ILI uh, experience now as a retired person than I was before. I was frankly a little scared of what I was going to do and, you know, having concrete plans. But now being curious and being active is that is the joy. Uh, and, and, you know, it's not going to come in the form of a check or a super trip somewhere. It's living every day. At least it is for me. I don't think I have it figured out yet. I also realize that it's a process that I'll probably take to my grave, hopefully in 20 or 30 years. But uh, it was a great year, just a just a fantastic year. Made lifelong friends, still good friends with a lot of people. And and that led to a, another job at Notre Dame. Um, so it, it really worked out well for me. Um, and it's a, been a great program for a lot of people. I think they're in their fourth or fifth cohort now. So that that job you took at Notre Dame, which is to me really intriguing and something I yeah. didn't find out until you and I spoke a week ago, <clears throat> tied you into the SIBC. And, yeah. and you mentioned previously, you, know, you have a sociology degree, arts and letters, which, you know, it was its own silo, you know, years ago, I'm not trying to age us, but when you were at Notre Dame, whereas that position you took at Notre Dame, if you could talk just a little bit about that and, and what you were able to to put together and form and, and kind of create a whole different type of legacy at Notre Dame. Yeah. Um, well, 
so what what happened at the end of my ILI experience is uh, the dean of the College of Arts and Letters sent something to our group and and explained that um, there was a donor and there was a need for some career discernment or you know a little bit of a focus for careers for arts and letters students, you know, students in philosophy or humanities or something like that. And uh, would we know anybody? And I wrote back and I said, hey, this is intriguing to me. I live close to Notre Dame now. Um, I don't know if I would be qualified for that. But she and I talked and uh, I was fortunate enough to be chosen for the job. And and it was really a a white, you know, complete whiteboard job uh, because nobody did it before me. I was the first person. So for, for an old guy who was used to being the president of a company, it was a great job where, um, the Dean said, gave me free reign to, uh, to design up a program for arts and letters students to engage in the career process. And I really didn't go in there with, with a lot of super ideas at first. What I did was I, I kind of did a census of what other schools did and especially good liberal arts schools and how they connected uh, students. And, and John, it's, it's kind of a funny thing because Notre Dame liberal arts students or arts and letters students, you know, they're, they talk about uh, outcomes, outcome numbers and how many get jobs and things like that. Well, the Mendoza kids are at 98%, I think, after six months. And the the arts and letters students are lag behind at like 97%. Okay. So we're already, <laughs> we're already dealing from a position of strength. But I, I've got to tell you, so I really embedded myself in the career center and found out. And I, I'm, I'm laughing this and, you know, your, your listeners may laugh. I couldn't have told you where the career center was when I was at Notre Dame. I never went there. Um, but now it's the whole fifth floor of Duncan dedicated to helping students realize what they want to do in life and then helping them get there. And so just designing up some things to get arts and letters students to, to visit and use the resources they already have. We came up with a program called beyond the dome that was really specific for arts and letters students. But to be honest with you, it's a lot of things that, that, that already exist repackaged with kind of a, Hey, look, this is for liberal arts students rather than a business student, you know, that uh, might get the career thing in their DNA when they get to Notre Dame. Uh, an English major is enjoying, or, you know, a, a theology major is enjoying their career. And then all of a sudden their Mendoza roommates are getting interviews and jobs and, and then they panic and they don't need to. So it was my job to kind of design something up and uh, had a lot of help from the marketing team, from the people over at the career center. And I think we moved the needle, but you would have to check back in 10 or 15 years to see. Right. And again, again, all we're doing is trying to close that one percent gap to the, uh, you know, the the College of Science or the Mendoza or the architecture thing. So Notre Dame students do well, and that's a blanket general statement. But I thought it was important, and one of the things we emphasized is, look, you've got a, a liberal arts degree that's very bankable in the real world, and I think as we talked about earlier. I think the fact that I was kind of an example of a you know sociology major and then had a successful career of in course. business, um, that you know, 
I'm one of thousands and thousands of successful people that have come out of that and, and frankly majored in what I loved. Um, so that was my, that was my mantra, uh, you know, for the couple of years I got this program up and running is major in what you love, but set yourself up to be in the real world at some point. Cause you're going to probably need a job. So I, I loved it. It was a, a great experience. It was during COVID, which wasn't ideal. So I had a year on campus and a year of COVID and then another year. And then, uh, it's be, being run by in the very capable hands of a young man now who's uh, all in. I told the dean I would give her a couple of years, and I did to get a program started. But I was really excited to try out this new retirement stuff again. That's good. That's good. So what would yeah. you tell your college self knowing what you know now? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I made so many mistakes. And, and you know, I just – our our youngest just graduated from uh, John Carroll University last year. So – I've had four years or six years or seven years of just watching them go to go through school. And, you know, I, I think I think that one thing that I would tell my younger self is have some patience and some frame of reference. I thought that, you know, it was the end of the world on certain things, if it was a, a business deal or, uh, you know, a girlfriend broke up or something like that. I just look back and realize that in the grand scheme of things, a lot of those things that I made out to be massive problems weren't. And uh, I, I suppose it's having lived 40 years now longer than that. You just realize that if you're not so high, maybe, or not so low and down in the dumps, persevere and things will work out. You, you know, it might be painful, and it won't last forever. And, uh, and you know, kind of, I, I, maybe it's getting back to that, what, reframing what joy is. It's, uh, that's called life. And there are going to be ups and downs and kind of take it in stride. I, I think that had I known that, not that I didn't work hard in college, but um, I would have, I would have probably been more involved in clubs and, and other things like that. I, I would have been more adult-like in college. Let's let's put it that way. And I, I suppose that's a cop-out for a, you know a sixty-year-old guy talking to his twenty-year-old self. Um, but yeah, I probably I like I said I was a far different student ten years later when I went back to school. Um, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. I I had a fantastic career. I learned a lot. I took classes I loved. I played a couple of sports at Notre Dame, made some really good friends. I, I just Hey, I want to I want to switch and talk a little bit about leadership. And earlier in the conversation, you said there was a person early in your career, if I remember the name correctly, Lou Cignoli, who really had a, an impact on you kind of as a as a mentor. And and that's specific to what what he provided you, but kind of big picture how does how did a mentor have an impact on you? Yeah, it, you know, it wasn't ideal to be thrust in the position of leadership uh, when the day before you were one of ten sales reps. Um, but I had the last name; I was the oldest son. It's just the way it worked out. But Lou was probably yeah, if I was thirty, he was fifty-five years old and a seasoned seasoned veteran of uh, of a larger corporation. And 
he really guided me and told me, you, you may want to do this, you may not. And looking back on it, when I took his advice, uh, things worked pretty well. When I strayed and thought that, okay, I've got this now, <laughs> again, as a 32 or 34-year-old, I've got this now, I made some really dumb, dumb mistakes. So I, I think there was a little bit of hubris at first of, you know, the, the wearing the pants of the president and thinking that uh, you're walking on water. And I quickly learned that I don't have all the answers and this is a much bigger job and I'm going to need the help of good, smart people around me. And so he was one of them. I had a couple of brothers. There were also people, you know, not necessarily that were even uh, even executives in our company, but they had been there a long time and I, they were wise people. Frankly, I had worked with some of them growing up and, uh, I, I just think that I think that some what I what I probably learned was a lot of humility back then. Uh, you know, got knocked down a few times from making stupid mistakes, and yeah, it was for lack of trying, lack of seasoned leadership. Um, but it didn't kill me. You know, kind of what I'm saying. It didn't kill me. It didn't kill the company. And honestly, John, I'm probably being a little hard on myself. I, I if if Lou or other mentors were in town or sitting here, they would probably say that I did a pretty good job, but it wasn't me. It was a team effort. Um, (laughs) And I quickly learned that, that the best way to do most things is through a team effort. And, you know, you get everybody pulling on the rope in the same direction. It's not a heavy rope. So you you mentioned team. I'm going to take that in a, in a different uh, direction. Four children, married for, I don't know how many years, 30 years, 30 plus years. How important is family to you in your career? And and, and talk a little bit about the support. And, and I don't want to say balance because I don't think it can ever be a true balance. Um, you know, how how can people learn from what you've uh, gone through? I'll tell through? you, I would not give myself a, a passing grade. I'd give myself a passing grade, but not a good grade on this. I was kind of cut from the cloth of you're going to work your 12 hour days and work comes first. And, uh, you know, my dad did it and I have to do it. Um, and I, I don't think that that was the right way. I kid, I think we kid ourselves during the time when we're in it that, Hey, we don't really have a choice. This is the way to build a business and I'm that important. And, and that, so getting back to the idea of team and and maybe layering in what I said earlier about, you know, let's not get too high or too low about things. Um, because at the end of the day, it's not rocket science or, you know, the world doesn't stop spinning because we didn't do something or hit a mark. Uh, that So looking back on that, I was a far different kind of father than my father was uh, just, and I would just attribute that to the generations and uh, build, you know, building a business and he lived an hour away from the business. So I got to coach my kids. Um, you know, I, I had a very good thing, but I still had kind of a wall between this is my work life. This is my family life. And if I had that to do over again, I think I would kind of look for ways to tear that wall down. Um, I think my wife would have been much more curious about what we were doing uh, and probably would have been much better counsel had I realized it at the time. Um, Same with the kids, frankly, even though they were young. Um, When you grow up in a family business and then you're running a family business, 
you can't help but have some talk at the dinner table about the business. It is, you know, what's paying for the soccer cleats. And so, so letting them understand a little bit more, uh, they came to the office a lot because it was only five miles from where we lived and it's a small town. Um, but you know, the, the, the friendships I made with customers and being on boards and things like that, I could have connected the dots better. I think for some of my kids, um, of what I did and what that made me in the community and how it affected the family in a good way. Um, you know, I, I think that, I think that the kids that they went to school with and, uh, or knowing that the hospital, you know, was our customer would have maybe helped them realize, Oh, I see the way commerce works. You know, dad does this for the hospital. The hospital does this for me and for others. And it all kind of is a circle and works. So I, I probably could have done a better job of that. Um, you don't get do-overs, but... That's okay. We make the best out of, of what we're given. I think that's great. I think you've done extremely, extremely well. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about the IBC. And um, when you were at Notre Dame most recently, after your the, the ILI program, you know, you, part of that bridge that you built was between Arts and Letters and Mendoza, which is great. And so... You were exposed to SIBC, and, and when we talk about the IBC and big picture, the IBC mission, it's to create a world where business community acts as a principled force for common good globally. Marty, can you talk a little bit about what that means to you from probably two perspectives? One, having been in Notre Dame and worked there, and then secondly, you taking over a business, you're 30 years old, I mean, starting back when you were 22 probably taking over 30 and growing it and, and what that means to you. And is it, is it possible? Is it feasible? And, and what can our listeners do to ensure that, that they continue that mission in life? Yeah. Um, you know, I told you that when I went back to Notre Dame and became the career program manager for the College of Arts and Letters, one of the first things I did was, as I said, go to the career center. And I kept hearing about this SIBC and it's the largest club and what what it is. And, and so I decided, I remember I talked to Monica, she was up there and she said, Hey, we're going to have our, we're going to have our kickoff meeting. You ought to come. So I did go and I sat in the back of a, maybe seven or 800 students. I was blown away by how many there were. And I, I really thought, wow, this is the missing piece. You do not have to be a Mendoza student or a business student. It doesn't matter. What you're figuring out is business. And as I said, I didn't have really a lot of business classes or even exposure to it until I got in it. So to be an English major or to be a philosophy major and join a club like SIBC and get that exposure to um, real world problems and how working it collaboratively, you can help solve those problems and uh, realizing the effect that has down the line to, you know, either a community or a company or something like that. It's just, it's just fascinating. I'm so glad that Notre Dame has that and that it's open to everybody. Um, and, and so putting that in, I wasn't in the SIBC or anything like it back in that. But, but, but what do you think, you know, as you kind of peel away the, the layers of, of business, you start to realize that, okay, what we're doing here is we run a sales organization and we need customers and we have to sell and grow by 15% or something like that. 
But after you start doing it, you start realizing the almost like the curtain, you know, uh, pulling back where, oh, well, what we're really doing is creating lives for our 125 employees. And they are taking the money they earn here and their kid is going to college. And then that kid is and ends up teaching at the local grade school, you know, whatever it is. I I I don't want to make it sound like a Frank Capra movie, you know, it's a wonderful life. But the ripple effect of of running or being part of a successful business or just trying to strive to get ahead in the world. I love the commercials that Notre Dame does. You know, what would you fight for? And it's something always on a grand scale, like, oh, man, we're changing uh, Uganda or whatever it is. But I when I see those when I see those commercials, I think of the little stories we get in the Notre Dame magazine of the person who is working every day at XYZ Corp in Indianapolis or something, and then is volunteering their time or taking their hard-earned money and applying it to their local Catholic grade school or a cause or doing something like that. There's thousands of stories of people doing good in the world and using whatever profession it is, whether it's business, medicine, or whatever they're doing in the world with an eye towards helping humanity. And I, I think that's what, you know, the difference with Notre Dame is for, for a lot of students is we're connected. Uh, you know, we're connected when we go to our small towns, when we go to our big towns. And it's great to see. Uh, and it was great to be part of, frankly. And it's been when you would talk about joy in life and, and the, the good life, what makes it good. It's it boils down to a lot of that is that, you know, you're doing something for others. And and that kind of leads to next question, which you may have already answered, but I'm going to ask anyway. If you were talking to a group of recent college, college graduates who really have a strong desire to make an impact in the world, but don't know where to start, what would you tell them? Um, well, I've got four of them that are out in the world right now. And, uh, and, and I really came up with this. This is not earth shaking or. The, the next best thing. Um, but I, I really do think it served me well, and I, I think it will serve the students well, is I think you should focus on two things. I think you should be curious. And by that, I mean, always trying to learn something more, always picking up the bulletin at church and reading what's going on, always looking online or something at a, a group or something that sounds interesting. You know, you don't have to join everything just to get ahead in your career. You may find something that you're really passionate about that you don't know anything about right now. So number one is curiosity. And the second thing is to be active. Um, I, I think that uh, today's students really get bogged down with, uh, with school and doing very well. They're used to doing well. And I, I'm not gonna say it, well, I guess I'll probably say it, but maybe with a caveat. Getting an A in everything ever in life and letting, you know, half the world pass you by or opportunities like that. I'm not sure that that's a win. Um, so I, I think that, you know, a, a life well lived is a very rich life. And that's a variety of different opportunities, um, things that you try that you fail at. Um, and and when, I, when I talk about being curious and active, um, you know, I used to, I used to, when I would counsel students, I would say, one of the best things you could possibly do 
is get an internship and have it be a disaster because there's a thousand things you can do. And now you know one thing you don't want to do. So it's a very valuable experience. And I, I kind of take that, take that advice or give that advice writ large. Try a lot of things in the world and see what you like. Some of those are going to really resonate and you're going to have a richer life because of it. And some you'll be like, yeah, that one isn't what it is. But nothing ventured, nothing gained. If you don't try, you'll never know. And I think it's sometimes in those margins of the things that you didn't really expect and things didn't go to according to plan that uh, surprises come and, and really pleasant surprises. Looking back where you are today, and like you said, you're trying to figure out what you want to do in your second career. What are you most proud of in your life so far? Well, I'm really proud that I've got four wonderful kids and a, a beautiful wife. Um, John, I'm, I'm proud that I got out of business with, uh, with two brothers in a third generation family business. And we love each other and had a great experience. That is, you know, had, had we had a successful business and it cost me my relationship with my brothers, that would have been a maybe a, a financial windfall and a, a life failure. So I'm really proud of that. And that, frankly, wasn't my decision. That was my middle brother's decision. And I had the, the courage and humility to say, that's a good decision. Uh, let's, let's do it your way. Um, and, and I, I really, I really still hang around with some guys from high school. And so it, when you, when you ask that question, you know, I'm not talking about building up a business and selling it, uh, starting another business that's successful. To me, though, those aren't the real successes. The, the successes are those things, like I said, that kind of come down or come with it. Um, the fact that we have 18 employees at Crossroads Solar that, like their job and are making a uh, making a change in their life, and we're helping enable that. That makes me feel real good. Um, the fact that uh, I've got four kids that seem to be um, that care about others. Uh, I think my wife did something pretty amazing there, and I didn't screw it up. Let's put it that way. So, um, you know, I, I I think it's. It's those things that make me think that I've had a good life or had success rather than my bank account. And uh, my, my last question, at the beginning of the conversation, you said, you know, today you read a lot, you read a variety of different things. Anything you want to share with our listeners on you know, something they want to pick up and read? Well, I just, I just read the book Cast. Uh, forget who. Um by Isabel Wilkerson. Wilkerson, right. And it's, uh, it was eye-opening about, uh, about castes in general, what they are, what they mean, what they look like in India, but what they look like in the United States. And it's, it's a tough read, um, but it really puts into perspective what we as white Eurocentric people may have done when we created this country and some of the things that we should maybe rethink. Uh, so I just, I like to have an open mind and I, I will read and listen and watch things from different viewpoints always. And I always try and think, hey, maybe they're right. Maybe they're right. So I try to have the open mind to do that. So uh, that was an excellent read. And, you know, since this is SIBC, um, it, I, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be appropriate for me to say what book I read without a, uh, a business book. And I've read a lot of business books. I kind of became a student as, 
as my father challenged me, you know, to become good at your craft. So I did read a lot of book on sales or, you know, good to great, what makes good companies, leadership, things like that. But one of the best books I ever read um, is a book called uh, Everything I Know About Business I Learned from the Grateful Dead. Um, and so I, I do like the Grateful Dead's music. And, and essentially, when I read that book, they did everything wrong. Um, they, you know, they gave away their music for free. They let people come in with tape decks and tape their uh, music where everybody else was controlling very carefully close to the vest, the master tapes or, you know, the albums and things like that. The Grateful Dead were like, no, take it, share it around, do what? And so they, and, and, and the way they run board meetings and give everybody at the table a voice, uh, no matter if it's a roadie or whatever. I really found that book fascinating. And, uh, and, and it made me think, cause, cause, you know, I think you can get in either undergrad or an MBA where you're, you're the smartest guy in the room now, cause you've learned this and you know how business works. And that book turned for me, turned everything on its head. You wouldn't do anything like that. They are the most successful live band in, in our country's history. And everybody, including the roadies have made a lot of money, um, doing it the wrong way. If, if you're going to do that. So it's a great case study at, you know, Mendoza uh, MBA school or something like that. But the other thing, the other thing that that book really did resonate with me is sometimes thinking out of the box is the way to go. Um, just because we've always done it this way. Uh, I really like clever solutions to usual problems. So and I think that they have proven to have a, a different model that's worked. So that, that's a good book. Plus, I, like I said, I'm a deadhead, so I just enjoyed reading it. Perfect. Marty, I can't thank you enough for your time, your insights today. I, I thoroughly enjoyed talking to you, reconnecting with you. And, and again, thank you personally for me, as well as from the IBC for being on today's Continuum Podcast. Yeah, it's been a delight, John, to see you after all these years and to talk about it. You'll have to clean this up, I'm sure, and put some really pearls of wisdom in there. <laughs> now, everything was great. Okay. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Continued success. Thank you very much, John. And go Irish. Thanks. Go Irish. Thank you for listening today to Continuum, the IBC's podcast series. If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe so you don't miss our next episode. And for more information about the IBC, visit our website at ouribc.com. That's just O-U-R-I-B-C dot com. Thanks.